Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. My goal will be to give all of you a glimpse into the world of the Ministry of Exorcism. And hopefully when you go away this evening, you won't go away with a greater fascination with evil, but with a greater fascination of the power of God and the role that he is called to play in our lives. So I'll give you an insight, hopefully some laughter along the way. Laughter is always good. I want to begin by just having everybody imagine for a moment it's Sunday morning, and there's a sound that begins to echo throughout the air. And what sound do we hear? It's the ringing of church bells. The ringing of church bells on Sunday morning was meant to remind everyone that we're called to wake up with the church and to be about the things of God. But it does seem today that religion and belief in God are becoming less relevant in the lives of many people. At a time when people are losing touch with their Christian heritage, there is a great risk for falling for ideas that sound appealing, but are actually misleading and can be extremely dangerous. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians warns us that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light and he deceives many people. As people are turning a deaf ear to the things of God, there has been a resurgence in the practice of magic and things that center on the occult. The danger that we are facing is when a person no longer believes in God, they will believe in just about everything. What people need to realize is that our ultimate destiny and identity comes from a relationship with God and not apart from him. In other words, when God is a concrete part of our lives, we have nothing to worry about when it comes to the reality of evil. It's when we move away from God and make him less relevant in our lives that we can get ourselves into trouble. Many people today live with a distorted view of freedom that echoes the fall of humanity mentioned in the book of Genesis. The guiding principles of this distorted view of freedom are, you may do whatever you wish. No one has the power to command you, and you are the God of yourself. This viewpoint leaves no room for God, and the result is a greater presence of evil, both in the world and in the individual person. St. John Paul II said that freedom in the true sense of the word means to live in the manner that God created us to live. In other words, when we are obedient to God and follow his commands, that is freedom in the true sense of the word. When we begin to believe that freedom means that we can do whatever we want, then we end up becoming slaves to our own passions and desires. It is true that many people today might laugh at the reality of a personified evil. Some people would say that if evil really exists, it's nothing more than humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. In other words, evil is something of our own making. People who reject the reality of evil believe that perhaps it's a throwback to the time of Christ, it's a throwback to the Middle Ages, or a time when mental health issues were not well understood. But the church has consistently taught throughout her history that evil is personified in someone that we call the devil. Pope Paul, back in 1972, clearly reiterated this fact in a series of general audiences that he gave, gave in the summer of 1972. The devil's purpose is to try to destroy religion 
and in doing so, dismantle civilization. One of my favorite definitions of the church is that the, tree, the church is the guardian to the tree of life because it is the vehicle that Christ gave us to allow us to once again enter into the presence of God the Father. You could say that the church lays out for us the path that all of us are called to walk that will lead us to eternal life. The devil believes that if he can destroy the church, then humanity will be trapped permanently in sin, as are the devil and the other fallen angels. It is a sad reality that as people have become bored with their relationship with God, there has been an increase in fascination with the devil and with the likes of divination, fortune-telling, witchcraft, black magic, spells, curses, Ouija boards, and so on. The truth is that when people get caught up in these things, they may not have a full grasp of what they're getting themselves into. They may think that it's all just fun and games, nothing more than entertainment. But in reality, they are opening themselves up to the forces of evil. To combat the reality of evil, the church uses the sacraments of reconciliation, the anointing of the sick, and if need be, the ministry of exorcism. Exorcism may be likened to a nuclear weapon. It's something that's in our arsenal, but it's not our first means of defense. Father Gabriel Amorth, the former chief exor exorcist in Rome, who died last year, believed that the place to begin with anyone who believes that they're up against the forces of evil is for that person to make a good confession. He believed this to be true because when we confess our sins, we place them in the hands of God, and once we place them in the hands of God, the devil can no longer use them against us. It's always important when discussing the topic of exorcism to define what is meant by the term. Many people have some notion of what the word means based on their own research or a definition that has been shaped by modern culture. How many people here have ever seen the movie The Exorcist? The Exorcism of Emily Rose, perhaps stories about paranormal activity, ghost hunting. Some people, when they want to learn about exorcism, will even go on the internet. I always like to remind everyone that just because you read something on the internet doesn't mean that it's true. Believe it or not, people post things out there that are not factual whatsoever. In my opinion, much on the internet that has to do with the ministry of exorcism is aimed at sensationalism. It presents information in a manner to create a fascination with evil or with the devil, as opposed to allowing people to draw closer to God. The word exorcism comes from the Greek word exorcismos and is an insistent request manifested before God or directed against demons. Literally, it means to bind with an oath. At its very core, exorcism is a prayer. It is a prayer that brings healing and peace to those affected and afflicted by the evil one, allowing that person to be reconciled to God. It is a ministry of compassion. It is a ministry of charity. It is a ministry that must be done well because it's not a game and it's not a hobby. When God is being requested to expel a demon, we call that a supplicating or minor exorcism. 
prayers for deliverance would fall under this category. When the devil or some evil spirit is being addressed, we call that a major or an imperative exorcism. Catholic belief holds that anyone may say a minor or supplicating prayer of exorcism, because after all, it is a prayer directed to God, and we know that anyone can pray. However, an imperative exorcism, as an official rite of the Catholic Church, is reserved to the priest who has been authorized to do this ministry by his local bishop. Every bishop is an exorcist by virtue of his episcopal ordination, and at his discretion, a bishop may bestow this charism on one or more of his priests. He may appoint any priest to perform an exorcism on an individual basis, or he may appoint a priest on a stable basis to perform this ministry. So I, as mentioned in the introduction, I was appointed to be the exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis back in 2005. And shortly after my appointment, I was able to study in Rome for three months in the early part of 2006, where the priest that I mentored under allowed me to participate in 40 exorcisms that he performed during my time there. And in doing so, I was able to learn firsthand the church's ministry to those who were up against the forces of evil. The official right is a book that looks just like this. So this is the official ritual of exorcism. It's only in Latin right now. Just last week, the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops approved the English translation of this rite. So it is expected to uh, not be on a store or shelf near you anytime <laughs> soon. So it is a book that only bishops may obtain a copy. And if they have appointed an exorcist in their diocese, then they present that book to him. This book came out in 1999. It was tweaked again in 2004 and 2005. And it was the very last liturgical rite to be updated after the Second Vatican Council. The new rite, when it came out, replaced the former rite that had been in place since the year 1614. So from 1614 to 1999, the rite virtually remained unchanged. One of the nuances in the rite is that it includes minor uh, prayers of exorcism. The new rite was meant to place in the hands of every parish priest a tool that they could use to help those who were being afflicted by the evil one. Now, the role of the exorcist is to investigate cases of alleged demonic activity and to make the determination that the official right of the church needs to be called into play. Even with this said, it needs to be stated that the exorcist should not be the first line of defense. Exorcists should only see those who truly need their help. Many people today who believe they need to see an exorcist, I believe, can have the majority of their problems resolved by going to see their parish priest. The parish priest should be the first contact, using discernment by listening to the person, assessing where they are spiritually, praying with that person, offering them a blessing, hearing their confession, and if need be, to contact the exorcist. Exorcism should always be seen in the wider scope of overall pastoral care. And we all know that the best place to receive pastoral care is at one's local parish. 
But again, the exorcist can weigh in and if need be, use the special prayers of the church. Demonic activity is classified under two main categories. It can be ordinary or extraordinary. Ordinary demonic activity has to do with temptation, something that all of us can struggle with on a daily basis. But the church does recognize four different types of extraordinary demonic activity. And I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll go back and comment briefly on them. So four different types of extraordinary demonic activity. Number one would be demonic infestation. Number two, demonic vexation. Number three, demonic obsession. And number four, demonic possession. Demonic infestation has to do with the presence of evil in a location or associated with an object. When it comes to infestation in a location, usually people will say strange occurrences are happening in the house. They will hear noises, movement, footsteps, lights will go on and off, things will move on the walls, pictures will fall off, an object might disappear in one location and appear in another. Demonic infestation. The second type of extraordinary demonic activity is vexation. This are, these are physical attacks whereby one believes that they are being attacked by some demon that's causing them bodily harm. These include cuts or bruises, scrapes, bites, blows, incisions of letters that appear on a person's body for a period of time and then disappear. Demonic obsession, mental attacks. A person's mind literally is being flooded with all kinds of evil thoughts. In fact, everything that happens in the person's life seems to be filtered through this presence of evil. So vexation would be physical attacks, obsession would be mental attacks. And then the fourth type of extraordinary demonic activity is demonic possession, whereby the devil or some evil spirit will take control of a person's body, treating that body as if it were its own using a person's mouth in order to speak, their feet in order to walk, their hands in order to strike, give a blow, or perhaps to give obscene gestures. Now, any priest should be able to address cases of infestation, vexation, and obsession, because the truth is, if a priest takes his vocation seriously, then so will the devil. I believe that there is a danger today. There are fewer priests, and there's a danger for priests to begin to see their priesthood as nothing more than an occupation. And again, when we reduce priesthood to an occupation, then we kind of weaken the authority that a priest receives through the sacrament of holy orders. So again, if a priest takes his vocation seriously, so will the devil. A priest in praying with somebody who is dealing with demonic vexation, for example, can say to the person afflicted, as a priest of Jesus Christ, I hereby cast out from you any presence of evil that is harming you. And if the priest says that with deep faith and conviction, then any connection with evil is immediately broken. But again, if a priest is questioning his priesthood, then he will not be effective in combating the forces of evil. Cases that deal with demonic possession 
are those that should be referred to the local bishop or to the priest that has been authorized to do this ministry and to investigate these situations. The tradition of the church has maintained four different criteria in evaluating the validity of cases of demonic possession. So in meeting with somebody, these are the four things that I would be looking for. The ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual, having strength beyond the normal capacity of the individual, superhuman strength. Number three, elevated perception. A person has knowledge about things that they shouldn't otherwise know. And number four, the one that perhaps is familiar to many of us, an aversion to anything of a sacred nature, such as holy water, being shown a Bible, being in a sacred place, being shown a crucifix, a relic, and so on. It's also possible to know that a demon is present when symptoms of the demonic are observed. These include bodily contortions, a change in a person's voice, whereby it will become much deeper, a change in physical appearance, a person's eyes will roll back in their head, so nothing more than the whites of the eyes are visible, a person begins to foam at the mouth. Unpleasant odors, a change in the temperature of the room, whereby it will become much colder, hysterical laughter, hissing and the resemblance of the movement of a snake, and even levitation. All of these can be an indication that there is a demonic presence. But before proceeding with the rite of exorcism, in the United States, there is a seven-step protocol that needs to be called into play. The exorcist, in many ways, is trained to be a skeptic. I should be the last one to believe that someone is truly possessed. The church wants to exhaust every other possible explanation for what is going on in the life of a person before labeling that person as possessed. Because if the church has labeled someone as possessed and that person really needs uh, mental help or needs to see their physician, the church would be doing greater harm because the label of, of possession would prevent that person from getting the true help that they need. So the first step of the protocol is for the person to have a psychiatric evaluation. The church wants to turn to experts in the mental health field in having the person evaluated. The church wants to know from these experts, is there anything about this person's condition that is beyond your understanding or your training? The second step of the protocol is for the person to have a physical examination by a medical doctor. The church wants to rule out any medical cause again, for what is happening in the life of the person. The third step of the protocol is for me to meet with a person and to take a life history trying to determine where the entry point of evil may have originated. The Vatican, in its course on exorcism, actually puts out an interview questionnaire. So these are the questions that you would ask the person. And I'll just pull a few out. There are 16 on here. The last one is probably the most important because it says, do you truly want to be set free from the evil that is currently in your life? So if a person truly wants to be set free, then they will do all that is required throughout the process of 
and exorcism in order to attain that freedom. One of the questions would be, have you had any history with chemical addiction or abuse with drugs or alcohol? Have you had any history with the use of pornography through the media, the internet, magazines, TV, and so on? What kind of music do you listen to? Have you had any relationships or contact with people who are associated with the occult or satanic practices? To the best of your knowledge, has anyone ever tried to place a curse upon you? Do you have an aversion to anything of a sacred nature? So these are the questions that I would use and in interviewing the person would simply jot down notes that eventually would allow me to arrive at the moral certitude that I would need before using the official right of the church. The fourth step of the protocol would be to try to normalize the spiritual life of the person. It's not enough for a person simply to want the evil to be cast out. The person also has to want to invite Christ in, either to renew their relationship with Christ or to establish that relationship for the very first time. There is a danger in doing an exorcism on anyone who doesn't really want to grow in faith. In chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel, the story is told of a demon that is cast out and then it goes and wanders through the arid wasteland, and then it comes back and finds the house swept clean, and then it goes and finds seven other demons worse than itself, and they come back and take up residence in the person. The notion of being swept clean means the evil is gone, but the void has not been filled with the presence of God. So again, casting out evil and inviting Christ in go hand in hand. The fifth step of the protocol is for me to look for those four extraordinary signs of demonic possession. Again, speaking languages otherwise unknown to the individual, superhuman strength, elevated perception, aversion to anything of a sacred nature. Number six in the protocol, because we live in the United States, it's the land of litigation, is to make sure that all diocesan and canonical norms are being followed. So the exorcist has to follow the law of the church as it's laid out when it comes to an exorcism. Step seven in the protocol is for the case to be compiled together, being sent to the local bishop who will then give permission for a major exorcism to be, to be performed. When I was appointed in 05, my bishop at the time told me that I did not need his permission, that if I believed that an exorcism needed to be performed, then I could go ahead and do it on my own discretion, but to keep him informed. When Archbishop Joseph Tobin came in Indianapolis to be our Archbishop, now the Cardinal Archbishop of Newark, he reappointed me in the role as exorcist, and he told me that I also had his blanket permission he gave me his cell phone number and did tell me, if you're ever going to do an exorcism, please call me and I'll pray for you while the prayer is taking place. I always jokingly told him that he didn't agree to come and to participate, but to pray. But again, prayer is something very powerful. According to church teaching, the devil cannot act on a person's intellect or on a person's will because these are spiritual faculties. 
there can be no actual union between an evil spirit and a human soul. The soul always remains free, no matter what antics an evil spirit may put a person's body through. It is the part that remains free that can ask for the help of the church. Some people would say, if a person is possessed, how can they ask for help? But again, just because somebody is possessed doesn't mean that they're manifesting evil all the time. The connection with evil can be there, but the manifestations may be quiet for some time. And again, a person can ask for help when those manifestations are not taking place. The devil, however, can act on a person's memory and on a person's imagination. These are corporeal faculties. The devil can act on a person's body, on a person's appetites and passions. The goal of the devil is to present morally bad objects to a person's mind at an angle designed to make them appear as a certain good. By objectifying evil, the devil wishes to keep humanity in a state of opposition to God. The devil's cleverest ruse, according to the famous remark by the 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire and echoed by St. John Paul II and Pope Francis, is to convince us that he does not exist. And I think all of us know that there are many people today that do not believe that the devil exists. And because of that lack of belief, the devil is able to work kind of behind the scenes and very quietly in our society today. It needs to be stated clearly that evil spirits cannot read our thoughts and our minds. Evil spirits do not know what we are thinking. The only person who knows the human mind and our thoughts is God himself. But the devil is able to influence our thoughts by ways of the imagination, which makes use of sensible images. Evil spirits can excite feelings in us, such as lust, anger, or despair. They can also deduce what we might be thinking by watching us closely and noting the effects they're producing in us. Because the devil can play on our imaginations, it's always important to think about what images of evil that we're putting into our minds. Because the devil can take those images and amplify them in such a way so as to terrify us and to increase fear within us. Not every evil spirit has the power to suggest every passion. Just as much as there is a hierarchy of angels, there is a hierarchy within the demonic world. So some are more powerful than others. They vary in strength, they vary in boldness, and they vary in malice. They have their specialties, and they look for an opportune time when we let our guard down in order to try to convince us to give in to the temptations of evil that they are presenting. Their power over us will either increase or decrease according to the amount of resistance that they're meeting in us. Resistance that we can build up by continually striving to live according to God's plan for us. I believe that anyone who is experiencing any type of evil in their life should do the following. Number one, go to Mass and to celebrate the sacraments of the Church, especially Holy Communion. 
Having the support of a praying community is important. God does not intend for any of us to walk alone. There is a danger today, even amongst young people, who will say, well, I'm spiritual, but I don't need to go to church. When people say that, they fail to recognize the important role that the community plays in our lives. I like to point out that when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he told them to pray, our Father who art in heaven, not my Father who art in heaven. It is a, a communal prayer, so we should never negate the important role that other people play in our lives. I always tell people that I like to watch Animal Planet shows. Anybody ever see those? When the lion is stalking its prey there on the African plain, there are two types of prey that the lion goes after. It will go after the weak and the young, and it will go after the strong if the strong decides to wander away from the safety of the herd. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your opponent, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking him whom he may devour. Resist him solid in your faith. So again, if we are solid in our faith, in our commitment to God, if we recognize the importance of going to Mass, receiving communion, going to confession, we can make ourselves strong. Other things that we can do is spend time in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament. I had the opportunity before this talk tonight to see the beautiful chapel here on campus. All of you should take advantage of that opportunity to spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Incorporate Marian devotions into your daily routine, especially the recitation of the rosary. Always remember that the Blessed Mother is a powerful ally when it comes to anyone who is up against the forces of evil. Use scripture for prayer and reflection. Include other devotions like the Divine Mercy prayers, litanies, the prayer of St. Michael, prayers to patron saints. Use sacramentals like holy water, blessed salt, blessed objects, and sacred images. But always remember, don't allow these sacramentals to become kind of like lucky charms within the Catholic Church. These items should always point to something greater. So the use of holy water, for example, should remind all of us of our baptism when we died to ourselves and put on Christ. And if we have truly put on Christ, we know that we need not fear any attacks that come from the evil one. Above all, the person is encouraged to remain focused on Jesus Christ, not on the devil or on evil, despite the evil one's attempt to distract and to discourage. One of the things that I've learned in the ministry of exorcism is to never focus on the antics of the devil. They're all parlor tricks meant to distract the exorcist from his ministry because the devil would believe if I can get the priest to really focus on what he's doing, then he will not be focused on the power of God that is at work in him. So ultimately, the best defense for any of us is for us to devote ourselves to the things of God and to think about the positive aspects of life. You would be amazed when somebody comes to me and says, Father, I'm being afflicted by evil. And I say, go to Mass. 
go to communion, go to confession, and they look at me and say, no, what do you really want me to do? But we have to remember it's the most ordinary things that we can do that will keep the evil one at bay. I jokingly always tell some of my priest friends when somebody comes to me and says they're up against evil, if I would say to them something far-fetched like, what you need to do is to go out and get a dead cat and swing it around your head at midnight <laughs> on the night of a full moon, they would look at me and go, where do I get the cat? <laughs> People are always wanting to do the extraordinary, but you should go away tonight remembering that it once again, it's the most ordinary aspects of our Catholic faith that will keep the evil one at bay. Genuine cases of demonic possession are extremely rare. They do happen, but not very frequently. Usually when somebody comes to me and says that they're possessed, I have my doubts. They self-diagnosed. It's like they're coming to me with a prescription that they want me to fulfill, to fill it out. But again, the exorcist wants to exhaust every other possible explanation. Most of the cases that I deal with are related to infestation, vexation, and obsession. I like to remind people that are interested in like ghost hunting and those types of things that you know, evil spirits don't have an address. They don't live at a location like you and I do. Usually when there is an evil presence in a location, it's the very things that people are doing in that location that are causing the demons to manifest. So when ghost hunters go into a building, they're actually causing the demons to manifest by what they're doing. It's not like the demons are living there saying, hey, thanks for stopping by. A few years ago, I was on vacation with some members of my family. I have eight brothers and sisters. And uh, we were down in Savannah, Georgia. We were walking one evening, and we were noticing all the people loading up on the buses to go on the ghost tours that night. I told some of my brothers I was going to get my holy water and get on the bus and go to those places and bless every one of them and cast out all the evil that was in there and put the people out of business. But again, <laughs> it's an indication just how much people are fascinated by evil as opposed to being fascinated by God. I also like to tell people that another good news to hear is that demonic possession is not contagious. So a demon cannot jump out of one person and into another. That would be giving evil more credit than it's due. That makes for a great Hollywood movie, but it's not reality. For evil to be present in someone, they had to either invite that evil in directly or indirectly. So one has to open themselves up to the forces of evil for this to take place. People can do this by cultivating a relationship with evil spirits. This is done when people engage in activities that perhaps they believe are fun or entertaining, but in reality can create a connection with evil spirits. In the 12 years that I have done this ministry, I have identified seven main ways that I believe that people open themselves up to evil. There's many ways that it's done 
but these seem to be the dominant ones that I have seen. So I want to share those with you. And then after a few more remarks, we'll have the opportunity for people to ask questions if you would like. So, and they're not in any particular order, ties to the occult. I do think that ties to the occult are probably the number one way that people get themselves into trouble. The word occult comes from the Latin word occultus, and it means hidden or secret. It focuses on knowledge of the paranormal. It's associated with things like palm reading, medians, Ouija boards, tarot cards, psychics, and witchcraft. All of these practices are condemned because they are a violation of the very first commandment where God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods besides me. When people turn to these occult practices, they're actually turning to the forces of evil. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, you must never practice black magic, be a fortune teller, witch, cast spells, ask ghosts or spirits for help, or consult the dead. Leviticus 19.31, do not defile yourselves by turning to medians or to those who consult the spirits of the dead. What people need to realize is that people who claim to have the ability to interact with the dead or with evil spirits are really being manipulated by the evil one himself. Because we cannot control evil spirits, they will always try to control us. A second way that people open themselves up to evil is through mental manipulation or brainwashing. Usually this found with people who fall into cults, whereby they abandon their family, their friends, the church, and the cult becomes the main point of reference. A third way that people open themselves up to evil is by being cursed. The curse is an opposite of a blessing. When something is blessed or someone is blessed, they're commended to God. When someone or something is cursed, it's commended to the devil or to some evil spirit. Curses are only effective if we are weak in our faith. We cannot control what another person does. We all have free will. Someone may choose to use their free will to be involved in witchcraft. We can't control that, but we can make sure that we're standing right in the eyes of God. Psalm 91 tells us to put on the armor of God, and in doing so, we need not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day. So again, if we are living out our faith, we are protected and safeguarded from anyone who may choose to put a curse on us. A fourth way that evil can enter a person's life is by being dedicated to a demon. Being dedicated to a demon. I worked with somebody one time who shared with me that it was her mother who told her as a young child that when she was born that she had dedicated her to Satan because her mother did not want her, attempted to abort her, and because she was born and wasn't wanted, her mother decided to dedicate her to Satan to get even with God for giving her a child that she did not want. So for the first 12 years of her life, she underwent all types of satanic rituals and abuse. When she was 12, she ran away from home. She ended up on the streets, 
And then when she was 18, she finally turned to the church for help. This young lady was one of the persons that I met when I was training in Rome. The evil was cast out of her by the priest that I was mentoring with. And this young lady went on to become a religious sister. So she dedicated her life to Christ. To this very day, she ministers to street children in the city of Rome. She knew what it was like to be out there on, on her own without anyone. And so now she strives with her own life to make a positive difference in the lives of those who are suffering. The story is a great one because it reminds us that just because someone has had an experience of the demonic, that they are never, ever truly lost. It's never too late for someone to reach out and to ask for the help of the church in returning to God or discovering him for the very first time. A fifth way that one can open up a doorway to evil is through a life of habitual sin. It does seem true today that many people are losing the sense of sin. People no longer believe that there are, there are moral absolutes, that there are things that are wrong and sinful all the time. People will try to justify their actions rather than simply taking ownership of them. That's why the sacrament of reconciliation is so important. Going to confession is not meant to embarrass someone, but is a way of allowing us to put the guilt behind us. Because I believe that guilt is one of the ways that the devil gets a foothold in our lives. Because we begin to doubt our own value and worth as someone who has been created in the image and likeness of God. So in going to confession, a person can rediscover their true identity and put their sins behind them. A sixth way that one can open up a doorway to evil is by inviting a demon in. One of the major exorcisms that I have performed over the last 12 years was on a person who was praying outside of an abortion clinic and witnessed somebody going in whom she thought was possessed. So out of a sense of misguided charity, she ran up to the person, looked her in the eyes and said, what's ever in you, I freely invite to come in to me. And she said no sooner did the words come out of her mouth that she felt a presence come over her. And then for the next 12 years of her life, she demonstrated all types of demonic manifestations. The eyes rolling back in her head, foaming at the mouth, kind of a distorted features. One of the times I met her, just for example, where the devil tries to instill fear, you see a person's jaw drop and move off to the side. The notion is try to appear as hideous as possible in order to instill fear in the exorcist and anyone else who may be available. In working with this person, there were seven demons that identified themselves. The weakest demons were the first to go. The last demon, who told me in the, in the ritual that his name was Leviathan, a demon mentioned in the book of Revelation, when the demon manifested, it said to me that it did not have to leave because it had been invited in. And because it had been invited in, it was now claiming the life of this person as its very own. But because the person had asked for help and wanted to break that con uh, contract, if you will, in the ministry of exorcism, the devil is commanded to return that which he has stolen. 
namely someone who belongs to God. I remember in this particular exorcism, after working with the person for about a year, we would meet about once every six weeks. And I should point out again that exorcisms are always performed in a sacred space. So we were meeting in a former convent chapel in southern Indiana. We were in there. The demon had manifested because the prayers of the church are meant to force the demon to manifest because once the demon manifests, then the fight against it will begin. And I commanded the demon to obey me in all things, although an unworthy minister of Christ. I told the demon to say, Hail Mary, full of grace, and then to depart immediately. The demon looked at me and laughed and goes, Grace of full, and then began laughing uncontrollably and screaming. About this time, a bell rings. 400 school children are now pouring out onto the parking lot right outside the chapel window of where we are. And so the, the demon says to me, if you stop praying, I will stop screaming. But if you keep praying, I'm going to scream because people will hear the screams. They're going to come in here and see what you're doing, and then you're going to have to stop anyway. So stop praying now. And then began screaming again. And then I commanded the demon again, using the right of the church, to obey me in all things, to say, Hail Mary, full of grace. Remember, the Blessed Mother is a powerful ally. Anyone facing evil, and then to delete and to leave immediately. And then this demon that had been speaking in his very deep demonic voice looked at me and in a child's voice went, Hail Mary, full of grace. And then there was a shriek. Every manifestation of evil stopped quicker than you could snap your fingers. And this woman who had all these signs of demonic possession simply sat there kind of glowing and smiling with all the manifestations completely gone. It was a hot day. I think I was drenched in sweat, heart pounding like crazy. Somebody asked me, what did you do afterwards? Did you go pray? Did you celebrate mass? And some of you might know the story. I went to Dairy Queen and had a chocolate shake. <laughs> it, it was a two-hour ride. It was a two-hour ride back to my home parish. I remember walking into Dairy Queen, and the place was packed. And I was standing there in line thinking, if these people knew where I just came from, <laughs> I could be like Moses partying the crowd. It's good to have a sense of humor in this ministry, because when you deal with people on the fringes, they can really kind of suck the life out of you. In fact, in the 12 years that I've done this ministry, I have known four colleagues who have left the priesthood. So much in dealing with this, it just overcame them. So it is very important to have a sense of humor. It's also important, I believe, not to do the ministry full time. So I am also a full time pastor in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. It's good simply to celebrate daily mass, mass on Sunday, baptisms, weddings, and funerals, normal things that priests do. Because again, if a priest did this full time, it would probably get to him eventually. The seventh and final way that I will mention that one can open up a doorway to evil is through broken relationships that are not dealt with in a healthy manner. 
We all know that there's a lot of brokenness in society today, but it does seem to matter how the brokenness is dealt with. Oftentimes when there's brokenness within families, what happens, people give in to bitterness, hatred, resentment, and all those ugly things, the very things that the devil will feed upon. But if we can deal with brokenness in a healthy way, learning to forgive, to bring about healing, then we can keep evil at bay. The best example of how broken relationships can bring upon the demonic is actually found within sacred scripture itself. In chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel, there's the story of the Gerasene demoniac. Jesus is passing through Gerasene territory. There is a man possessed by legion living in the tombs. Shackles won't even hold him. He's naked. Jesus is walking by. The demons began to speak. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come before the appointed time? Jesus begins to rebuke the demons. He orders them to come out. They beg to be sent into the swine. The demons are cast into the swine. They race over the hillside and they drown in the lake. Most people usually stop reading the story after that. But something very significant happens. The man who's now free of legion wants to follow Jesus. But Jesus says to him, no. Now, how often does Jesus tell somebody not to follow him? So it should be ringing out loud and clear that something very significant is taking place. Jesus says to him, no, go home to your family. Here's a man who was living amongst the dead that Jesus now wants to put back amongst the living. And in the world of exorcism, it is believed that the broken family relationships that were not dealt with in a healthy manner eventually brought upon the presence of the demonic. So in working with somebody, if I believe that there has been an entry point and come to that moral certitude, then that's where the ritual of exorcism will come into play. Demons have power. They can only be defeated by power. The power that defeats them is the power of God, and the rite of exorcism is the means for calling upon God himself. Again, if I'm going to do an exorcism, I prepare myself, I celebrate mass, go to confession, spend time in prayer, fasting. I determine the location of where the exorcism will take place, always a sacred space. The devil does not get to choose where he will be defeated. The church herself will make that determination. It will be the person that's possessed, family members will be present, and anyone else that I will invite to be there as a prayer warrior. No one is there out of curiosity. There is no such thing as exorcism tourism. So nobody is there simply out of curiosity. The church does not allow exorcisms to be filmed or any of that to maintain the secret identity of the person. So I determine it. It begins by blessing the person with holy water, a reminder of our baptism into Christ, the litany of the saints, calling upon the saints and our Blessed Mother to come and to be a part of this prayer of the church. There is the recitation of sacred scripture. 
especially the accounts of Jesus casting out demons. The demons are reminded in those scripture passages that they have been defeated before, they will be defeated again, so they should not resist the power and the authority of Christ. After the recitation of sacred scripture, there can be the renewal of baptismal promises, the laying on of hands of the person, calling upon the Holy Spirit, the insufflation prayers, so breathing upon the person. We know that when Jesus breathed on his disciples, he gave them the Holy Spirit. So in breathing on the person who's possessed, is calling upon the Holy Spirit to come. Because wherever the Holy Spirit is truly present, an evil spirit cannot remain. And then there is a supplicating exorcism prayer that is said, so I will ask God to bring relief into the life of the person who is suffering. A sample prayer would be, O God, protector of those who hope in you, take up buckler and shield and arise to help your servant. Release him or her from the snares of the enemy, and with your power, fight against those who fight against him or her. Through Christ our Lord, amen. And then I would go into a major exorcism prayer whereby the demon is being commanded. I adjure you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. Part of the ritual can call for the priest to order the demon to name itself because when a demon names itself, it shows weakness. Because when you know the name of somebody, you have a certain power over them. So when a demon names itself, it's demonstrating that it's submitting to the power and the authority of Christ. The ritual can go on as long as it takes. My experience is I usually will meet with somebody about 30 minutes, and then if need be, to repeat the prayers again. Why do prayers need to be repeated? Because it does seem to be true that the demonic makes a greater claim on someone who has heard the good news of Jesus Christ, but has now turned their back on their faith. So they knew the truth, but chose to walk away. In the pagan world, if somebody is possessed, they've never been baptized, never heard the good news of Christ. When they hear it for the first time, it's my experience that the exorcisms are immediate and effective. Had that experience when I was able to travel to South Africa earlier this year at the request of the South African Bishops' Conference. But down there, in encountering and working with people who did not know Christ, who were possessed, it only took one exorcism for those people to be delivered and set free. After the prayer of major exorcism, once the demon is cast out, then there is a prayer of thanksgiving, giving glory to God for what he has done, because ultimately, God is the one who will bring freedom in the life of the person who is suffering. And with that said, I believe we're going to allow time for questions. So you see, he's saying that I made the reference that a human soul always remains free, but what happens if one freely gives their soul to the devil? Then that's a completely different matter then, because it is possible that someone could make a contract with the devil and say, 
I freely give my soul to you. They can still, they can still re ask for help, even if they've kind of made that contract and agreement. So again, if they ask for help, then God will permit that. But they have to ask for it. Again, exorcisms may not be performed on anyone against their will. There was a story on Catholic News Agency several weeks ago on Lady Gaga. I don't know if you saw that or if anyone saw that. She was telling the story that she believed that she had made a contract with the devil. She said she was play, playing in all these backwater bars and clubs, career going nowhere. One night during an intermission, she went out and smoked a cigarette. There was a man standing out there that said, hey, I can give you whatever you want. She thought it was just some pickup line. He's like, no, I can give you whatever you want. You just have to give me your soul. And she says, well, I give it. And then she counts, recounts in the story that after that, her career skyrocketed. She became very famous and wealthy and whatnot. In the story, she says that now that she's trying to break free of that, because some of you might know that she's been experiencing some physical maladies, she believes that the devil is afflicting her because she's trying to break the contract that she made with him. But it is possible that one could say that, but they can still break that because with their free will, they can turn to God, and God in his mercy and charity will honor that. But the person has to ask. Can demons be converted? And the answer is no. No. So their choice is now forever set. And why is that? Because it's the nature of angels. When angels were created, they received infused knowledge. They don't have to learn anything. It's like a computer being downloaded with all the knowledge there is. So they were created, they received infused knowledge. This is St. Thomas Aquinas in his writings. They received infused knowledge. God created them, gave them this knowledge, and then said, will you use your free will now to choose to glorify me? And it was Satan and one third of the angels that chose not to glorify God. So they still retain their intellect, their understanding of the natural order, but with their understanding and intellect, they could see every possible consequence of their rejection of God. And even with that knowledge, they still chose to reject God. So demons can't learn anything new. They know all there is according to their nature. So the truth is they would never even desire to change. So the church says that their, their judgment has now taken place and is final. But they know that we as humans still have the capacity of conversion. goes back to your question. So because we humans can still learn and grow. I mean, one of the things we say about our Catholic faith is that conversion is a lifelong process. But for demons, that's not the case because of their nature. So we can still be converted, if you will, but demons cannot, and they would even choose not. They remain obstinate in their will, the choice that they have made. So the devil cannot be converted or any other fallen angel. If one is speaking in tongues, in the true sense of the word, then they are being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what they're saying is prayers glorifying God. Usually when somebody has a gift of tongues, 
called glossolalia. There should be somebody that receives the gift of interpretation to know what is being said. But there's a difference between speaking in tongues that gives glory to God and somebody speaking a language otherwise unknown to them whereby they're blaspheming God. So one is a praise of God, speaking in tongues, and then if one is possessed, what they're speaking is actually blasphemous towards God. Because possession really only affects the body. So when a person dies, then the connection is no longer there. No, then we would rely on whatever mercy and the love of God for that person. But again, a person is making a choice there. So have they openly cultivated a relationship with some demonic entity whereby they completely rejected God? Or did they at some point turn to God? Because ultimately, we never know when somebody turns to God. You think of the good thief on the cross where Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. We just don't ever know the depth and the mercy of God. But again, demonic possession is, pertains to the body. Now, we might ask the question, why would a demon want to possess a human body? We all get old. We have to wear glasses. Our hair falls out. <laughs> What's so great about the human body? Remember the devil, his desire is to mimic God in all ways. The greatest thing that God did for us was the incarnation. God took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. So the devil or any evil spirit, in its own twisted sense, believes that it takes on human form by possessing a human body. So supplicating prayers. Actually, I think I mentioned the, the church has just issued those. So prayers to overcome the powers of darkness are prayers that one can pray on their own. They are, that's Appendix 2 of the Ritual of Exorcism. And that little pamphlet is now available through the bishop's website. Anyone may purchase it. It's selling for $6.95. <laughs> but that's not a plug for that. But, but again, those are prayers that one can pray on their own or pray with somebody else. And what's nice about them is that they are the prayers of the church. And so that makes them efficacious or truly powerful in what they are. And then the first part of the question, again, remind me real quick, was? You mentioned that there are a lot of ordinary things. So the ordinary things. So bro when it comes to broken relationships, the best thing that we can do is to forgive. And I know that's hard to do when somebody has hurt you, which is why I always believe that if somebody has hurt you, the place to begin is by forgiving that person for your benefit. Maybe you can't do it for their benefit initially, but do it for your benefit. Cardinal Tobin, when he was in Indianapolis, gave the analogy that when you don't forgive somebody, it's like drinking a deadly poison yourself and then looking at the other person and waiting for them to drop dead. In other words, when you don't forgive, the person you're hurting the most is yourself. So the best way to heal broken relationships is to forgive somebody for your benefit. Because then you're choosing not to live with all the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, and all those other ugly things that the devil would feed upon in our lives. Yeah.
they can see us committing those acts, obviously, yes. But if we're thinking something, they don't know. But they can use their in intelligence to deduce what we might be thinking or how we might respond. But again, they don't know everything. They don't know the future. But again, they use deductive reasoning. Remember when Jesus began his public ministry after the 40 days in the desert, who comes to him? The devil. And what's the very first thing the devil says to Jesus? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. He's been watching Christ closely. He knows human nature. If you hadn't eaten in 40 days, you're probably going to be hungry. He knows that with his infused knowledge that God was going to send a Savior. And he's wondering, ah, is this him? And so he wants to know, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to turn to bread. In other words, succumb to your human need for food because you are a true God and true man and demonstrate to me that you are truly uh, the Son of God. Now, the way to cast out fear is with our faith and belief in God because, again, evil will always present itself as something more than it is. One of the images I like to use when it comes to evil is it's like walking into a room that's infested with cockroaches. When you flip the light on, what do the roaches do? They scurry and head for any nick or cranny where they can go back into the darkness. So even in the ritual of exorcism, it's throwing the light of Christ on one who is impacted by evil. But evil is nothing to fear. Because again, fear means that we're allowing doubt to take hold of us. So nobody should go home tonight and as you're walking home, if you're hearing the leaves rustling, wondering what was that? <laughs> or you say to somebody, can you walk me all the way home or sleep with the nightlight on and things like that? Don't give in to fear because that's what the devil plays upon. Father, uh, you know, Padre Pio, St. Pio now, he was afflicted by evil throughout his life. There's a little book called The Devil in the Life of Padre Pio, and he believed that the devil came to him every night, and he used to call the devil Old Bluebeard, and he said when he was sleeping, the devil would come in and try to wake him up, and he would roll over in bed, you know, all the noises or whatever, and he's like, oh, it's just you, and then he would roll back over and go back to sleep. <laughs> wouldn't pay any attention. Again, the devil wants you to pay attention to him. But you don't have to pay attention. If one feels like fear is getting a hold of you, that's when we should pray. God, I'm, fear is trying to enter my life right now. I just call upon you to send the Holy Spirit to give me the safety and protection that I need. Just pray. It doesn't have to be any special prayer, you know, oh God, you're so wonderful and great. Just my, one of my favorite de definitions of prayer is that prayer is a come-as-you-are event. If you're afraid or worried, pray out of that experience. Whatever it is, and God will give you what you need. Even when it comes to going to confession, when people will say, well, I don't know what to confess. I believe that if you pray before going to confession and simply say, God, place on my heart what I need to confess today. If you pray that, you're going to come up with something to say. could go by yourself. It's not advisable. Because if you're just one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you can put yourself in a precarious situation. 
The good thing about having others there is that the others that are there represent the community that is the church. So it's almost like making the living church present. That's true of those who are there and in the Litany of the Saints calling upon the part of the church that's now in heaven. Addiction. Addiction would be the number one way that I, I would say that is. That's true of whether it's pornography, alcohol, or drugs. When I was in South Africa, Cardinal Napier in the city of Durban actually put out a prayer card for those suffering from addiction. The prayer says, Most merciful Father, give strength, we ask you, to all your children who are held bound by the chains of addiction to pornography, drugs, and alcohol. Bless them with perseverance in their fight to be free. May they reach out and receive the help they need to take the first steps towards recovery. Give courage and hope to their families, friends, and communities, and draw them close together in the power of your mercy and love. May your Son, Jesus Christ, who ministered to all who came to him in need, assist all who today accompany and care for those who suffer from addiction. Grant them understanding, but above all, love that endures and transforms all things. So I believe it's addiction because, and again, I think sometimes people are afraid to admit their addiction, but again, the things that we name, we can control. The things that we deny control us. So when people have a problem with addiction, rather than admitting it, sometimes they try to justify it or they say, well, it's not really a problem for me. I can deal this or I can give it up whenever I want. Years ago when I was in the seminary, there was a quote that I remember reading in a book and it's always stuck with me. And it's this, if you try to get rid of qualities about yourself that you don't like, feed in addiction, then you declare yourself to be more and more non-existent and your devils grow fatter and fatter. So all of us, there are aspects of our lives that perhaps we're not proud of. We can continue to deny it. And in doing so, we're feeding the demons, if you will. But by naming it, we are inviting God more deeply into our lives and we will eventually have the freedom that we seek. But again, I believe that it's addiction that is the number one form of habitual sin. Would you say it's because it's that, like, uh, that giving up of your free will to the addiction that makes it so easy for the new Yeah, people do give up their free will, but sometimes they, again, they, they delude themselves because they believe that they can stop whenever they want, that it's not controlling them. So whether it's yoga, the practice of Reiki, usually it always comes up that when people are doing these types of exercises or practices, are they also opening themselves up to the Eastern spiritual practices that may lead to some type of demonic presence? People always ask, what if I'm just doing the exercise? Maybe that's not a big deal, but the danger might be that it, does it become a slippery slope? One might begin doing yoga or Reiki for the physical exercise aspect, but then they become intrigued with the spiritual component of that as well. Because even when it comes to Reiki, uh, Cardinal Donald Whirl down in Washington, he wrote about how sometimes Reiki will say, well, you can adapt it to whatever faith you have. So if you're, you're Catholic, you can make it Catholic. If you're Protestant, you make it Protestant. If you're Jewish, you make it Jewish. But again, if you're calling on a power or an energy 
and you're not calling that the Holy Spirit, then what is that? And that is usually something of an evil nature. So the church does believe that there is danger in those practices. You can have better exercise by, you know what the number one form of exercise that Cardinal Tobin likes? He power lifts. <laughs> he power lifts, he really does. So he did that in Indianapolis and the people that he power lifted with at the gym didn't even know he was a priest until they were, they were power lifting. You know, they're like, wait a minute, you look like the guy that was just named a cardinal. <laughs> and then the cat was out of the bag. So rather than yoga and all that, go power lift with the cardinal. <laughs> so certain music can do that. Video games can do that. They just kind of subtle ways of letting things in. Types of literature, people always talk about things like Harry Potter, does it create a fascination with magic? When I was in Rome last year for the international gathering, one of the priests was talking about Pokemon cards. You know the name Pikachu? You know what the name Pikachu means? It means 100 times more powerful than God. So the danger is things may not appear to be bad, but they can be subtle entry points for uh, evil into our lives. So not, ultimately, God will determine when one is set free. So there may be people that I work with that would be better off working with somebody else. I mean, some of the exorcists that I've uh, trained under and worked with and gotten to know will say that they worked with somebody for a long period of time, but then another exorcist was brought in who was able to bring immediate relief. So it really does perhaps depend on, well, it does depend upon God and who he's going to choose to use for whatever reason that he has. But ultimately, if a person has the true desire to be set free, then it will happen but it will always happen according to God's timing. So the mental health professionals are asked to do a psychiatric evaluation and then to determine whether or not they think it's something demonic or if it's something of a mental health nature. If it's something of a mental health nature, then medication should be able to bring relief into those people. But again, the church is asking Again, if somebody has been under medication, and sometimes it's true, it takes a period of time to adjust the medication and get it to the right level, which is why, again, the church moves cautiously. The church doesn't just freely throw out the fact that somebody's possessed. I think my experience is that more people give themselves the label of being possessed than the church does. There are a lot of people that get angry with me, they hang up on me, they cuss me out on the phone, when I don't tell them what they want to hear. And usually when people believe they're possessed, they want me to validate that. But again, I'm going to be a skeptic because again, I want to exhaust every other possible explanation. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I want to rely on these experts, people that have the training in that field, to say, what do you believe is going on? And when they do somebody, they will go through the complete psychiatric evaluation, try to determine where somebody is at mentally, 
Because if somebody is you know, dealing with schizophrenia, for example, because the symptoms of schizophrenia can also be very similar to the symptoms that are seen in somebody who's possessed. But if it's truly schizophrenia, then medication should be able to bring them some type of help or relief. No, if somebody comes to me, I actually refer them to the mental health professional. Then I would make sure they, have, they see their medical doctor to roll out any physical cause. And then I would meet with them and kind of go through that questionnaire and try to make my own determination. You know, the truth is today that the mental health field is, is pretty overtaxed. And that's why it does take some time and people can get frustrated because if, to get in to see somebody that's a mental health professional, sometimes they can take months just because I think they're so overworked. I met with a man one time who was diagnosed as schizophrenic. He was telling another priest that he believed that he was possessed. And I sat down and I talked and I met with him and over a period of time and he was not possessed. And what's interesting, I wasn't just gonna say to him, you're not possessed, go on your merry way. So I arranged a meeting between him, his caseworker and his psychiatrist. So the four of us sat down together and I said to the man, you are not possessed. And the psychiatrist says to him, father says you're not possessed, what's your response? It was interesting, his response. He said, I'm disappointed. <laughs> but listen to what he says next. He goes to the psychiatrist. You can give me a label and tell me I'm schizophrenic, but you can't tell me why. He goes, if it's the devil, then I have my why. So he said, so his take was that the mental health profession can give labels just as much as maybe the church gives labels, but there has to try to come to some type of, I don't know, moral certitude. And I always believe that, you know, it is that whether you're the priest, or the psychiatrist, or the doctor, we should be kind of working collaboratively so that we bring relief to the person who's suffering, whether that be due to spiritual, physical, or mental causes. But again, the, the number one writing goal is to act out of a sense of charity or mercy for one who is suffering. The church says that those four criteria are possible signs of possession, but not necessarily so. One doesn't have to have all four, so one doesn't have to be speaking in different languages or superhuman strength or elevated perception or aversion to the sacred. Those are just possible signs that could lead to uh, the moral certitude that the priests would need. I've, yes, I've witnessed all of those. Levitation. Levitation as well. But what's interesting, remember that I said that the demonic can play on a person's memory or imagination. So the big question we have to ask ourselves when we see these things, are they really happening? Or is the devil making us think that we're seeing it? I was going to say that I've, you hear stories where people will say when the demon manifested, the person crawled up the wall like a spider and all that. Did that really happen, or did people think that they saw that? That's why I think it's always important not to, to really focus on all that, but to simply pray for the person. Because again, remember, at its very core, exorcism is a prayer. Here's somebody who's troubled or afflicted. Who knows what way they're troubled or afflicted, but you pray for them that they find that sense of peace and wholeness in their life that they're looking for. Maybe that's on a spiritual level, physical or mental level. Maybe it's a combination of all three. 
pretty, pretty thorough. And it's important to note that the church is not asking the medical doctor or the psychiatrist or psychologist, do you think this person is possessed? The church is not asking that question. The church is asking, is there something about this person's condition that you can't explain based on your knowledge and training and understanding? Yeah, because the goal would be for, to have them meet with the mental health profession, not just once, but over a period of time. Because over a period of time, if there is any manifestations or whatnot that will take place, then they will. It's also possible then there could be a joint meeting, like when I met with that man and his psychiatrist and caseworker. So, but that's something that all the parties would have to be open to. And it is true that not everybody is open to the, the possibility that it's something of a spiritual nature. People that are disabled, and the church also says that anybody under the age of reason can't bring evil upon themselves, that God would protect and safeguard them. The age of reason that the church uses is the age of seven, that by the time a child is seven, he or she has a good understanding of right and wrong, which is why that's the age when Catholic children make their first confession and first Holy Communion. So if somebody is mentally disabled, they would fall under the category of not having reached the age of reason. So God would protect and safeguard them as well. So those people could not deliberately bring evil upon themselves, no. So Halloween, obviously, yeah, because there's a focus on evil. I mean, if somebody's dressing up as Cinderella or Superman and going trick-or-treating, in my opinion, there's no big deal. But it's when people have the fascination with dressing up as evil spirits or demons or hideous creatures, I think that's a different story. I think there's a difference between praying for those who have died and trying to conjure up the spirits of the dead. Remember, it was King Saul in the Old Testament that went to see the witch of Endor to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. And so the practice was you shouldn't do that because he was looking for information that he wanted Samuel to tell him. Even when Samuel manifested, the witch was surprised because really it was what God permitted to happen. Then King Saul was chastised for violating God's commands. But there's a difference between praying for those who have died and trying to communicate with them, seeking answers or whatever. There's a distinction sometimes people will say, if there's a presence in a house, is it always a demon? Could it be the soul of one who's died? Once we die, we cannot choose to act in this reality. So if the soul of one who's died is acting for whatever reason, then God must be permitting it to happen. And usually when the soul of one who's died seems to be interacting in this reality, God's permitting it to happen for the person to seek prayers. And usually when that's occurring, my experience is when, when the spirit is doing whatever it's doing, it's annoying perhaps, but it's not frightening. And usually when there's a sense of fear, that might be an indication that it's of an evil nature. But again, if the soul of one who's died is interacting in this reality, God must be permitting it to happen. The souls of the dead can't not do that on their own. So a baby could be possessed, but not of its own volition. So the example I gave of somebody being dedicated to Satan from birth. So somebody over them would have had to expose them to the demonic presence. And it is possible to have a symbiotic relationship. The church would call that perfect possession. 
that one knows that they're possessed and they finally accept the demonic presence in their life and then choose to live in a harmonious relationship with it. I would say that going to see a median is not consistent with our faith. Again, that's a practice mentioned in Deuteronomy that we should not do. So yeah, going to see that's not consistent at all with what we believe. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father. Uh, all right. We'll see the rest of you at other campus insurance and mass on Sunday. Thank you again. All right. Thank you all.